On today's episode, we welcome Jonathan Clegg, the senior platform editor for The Wall Street Journal, who co-wrote the book The Club. He conducted over 100 interviews of the most influential people in the Premier League era from essentially the 1980s forward. We talk about the history of the Premier League, the history of Everton in the Premier League. He tells us some very interesting stories after talking to Sam Allardyce, Steve Walsh, and then we cover some more general Premier League history. Lastly, we then wrap it up with a Cardiff City pre-match. This is Alex. And this is James. And you're listening to the American Toffee Podcast. We are very pleased to be welcoming on Jonathan Clegg, author of the recent book, The Club, How the English Premier League Became the Wildest, Richest, Most Disruptive Force in Sports. Alex and I have both read the book. It's a fantastic read for any fan of, honestly, sports in general. But if you are a Premier League fan, you should definitely check this book out. It is comprehensive. It is really, really rollicking read, as it says. in some of the reviews. John, thank you very much for joining us. No, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. First thing we wanted to talk about was what prompted you to want to cover the Premier League and the formation and the development from this specific angle, kind of a long view form of everything that's happened in the league and its its huge growth since the 1980s, where it was very much a localized product within England. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. And, and the answer really is just the fact that um, nobody had done it before. You know, the, the story of the Premier League and how it grew from, like you say, what was a kind of, you know, failing business, basically, in the late 1980s, um, to become, you know, the most widely watched, most popular um, sports league on the world in the world, um, is one of the sort of most remarkable business stories of our time. And, you know, I think the fact that nobody had sort of unpacked this thing and, um, you know, taken, like you say, that sort of 30,000 feet view of how English football changed, not so much on the field, although we do, you know, on the pitch, but we do, we do get into a lot of that, but also, you know, in the boardrooms and the executive rooms and how, you know, the whole sort of fabric of English football had changed and how that sort of had an impact on English society as well. It's a kind of, it's a wild story, um, full of like a bunch of hilarious, colorful and crazy characters. And, we felt like now sort of 25 years into the Premier League experiment was like the right time to tell this story. So, John, can you tell us how exactly you were able to get access to everyone from league leaders in the 90s to managers to agents through the entire book from the 80s to present day? Yeah, I mean... I, I, you know, we did, um, and I, obviously, I should mention that I, I co-wrote the book with um, Josh Robinson, who's um, a colleague of mine at the Wall Street Journal, and um, he covers the Premier League for the paper now. And um, I had done that job before him uh, for sort of five years. So between the two of us, we had done about ten years worth of of covering the Premier League for the Journal, and. You know, so that helped a lot. We already had kind of our Rolodex has already had a bunch of, of names of people in. But um, the secret really was that we 
we basically got um, those people that we did know to kind of vouch for uh, vouch for us to other people, and that kind of created a snowball effect that that really helped us out. I think we did over a hundred interviews for the book in total, um, and we probably started with maybe you know a dozen key people that we that we knew we could get to, um, and then leaned on them to to hook us up. So we knew. Um, Josh knew David Dean, the former Arsenal um, vice chairman, and he was a very instrumental figure in the establishment of the league. And he was able to put us in touch with a bunch of the other owners who were kind of his accomplices in in uh, launching the breakaway of the Premier League. And then, you know, the, in terms of the sort of current owners, um, we were really lucky that a lot of the American owners, I think because of the Wall Street Journal um, credentials we had, were willing to speak to us. And then once you had sort of spoken to a couple members of the big six, then the others kind of wanted to speak to us just to make sure that we got their side of the story and they weren't kind of left out. So, you know, we were, we were pretty ambitious about the types of people we hoped to speak to and were not sure we would get them, but um, we pretty much got to everyone that we were hoping to speak to that we realistically thought we had a shot to speak to. I know Daniel Levy was like a, a real, um, big fish for us. We definitely wanted to speak to him because uh, when you look at what he's done at Tottenham, it's kind of one of the most um, extraordinary Premier League transformations, how he, he turned Tottenham into a big six team without the sort of huge cash injection that that has been needed for teams like Chelsea or Man City to do that. So we were really anxious to speak to Daniel Levy and he kept us waiting for um, a long, long time, but um, finally agreed to speak to us the day after the transfer window closed um, last February. So yeah, so that was pretty much how, how it all went down. Could you talk a little bit about the timeline of, so when you decided that this was something you might want to pursue, what was the schedule for, you know, doing all the research to actually writing the stuff down to publication and, you know, finalizing it. And now, of course, doing the marketing side of things. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it's our first book. So we, we, we really didn't know too much about how all that stuff would work either in terms of like after you finish writing the book, how much work there is still to do. Um, I mean, we, like I said, we, we had been sort of kicking around the idea of doing a book, I guess, pretty much from the end of the um, Leicester City title winning season. Back then, Josh was writing about the Premier League for the journal and I was his direct editor. So we worked really closely um, that whole season on stories about, you know, this kind of A, one of the most unbelievable sports stories in in any sport period. Um, but we also spent a lot of time thinking about what it was about the modern Premier League that had allowed this to happen. What ha- what were the sort of factors that had sort of come together to allow this underdog Leicester City team to win, you know, the title and, and take it from a big six gang of clubs who should, by all by all accounts, be um, you know um, have the title on lockdown every season. Um, and so while we were sort of thinking about the Premier League and how it had changed and the money and all that sort of stuff, we started thinking about that there was the sort of framework of a book here. And But it wasn't until, I guess, around about May 2017 when we, um, when we decided to start, you know, putting some ideas together. We met with some agents to talk about, um, to talk about the book. And once we wrote the sort of proposal, which took maybe – a month. Um, the proposal was sort of a 10,000 word, you know, short version of the book, basically just sort of hit up on the kind of general ideas that we wanted to, to discuss in the book. 
Uh, we sold the book and then writing it was actually a very quick process. We started in earnest in about August, September um, of 2017. And we, we turned in the manuscript um, at the beginning of February 2018. So it took about four or five months to do. And we, we researched and wrote the book in that time. Wow. That, so that's a very quick turnaround, of course, with a lot of source material. It's it's very dense. It covers, it's not a very long book. You know, it's 300 or so pages, but it covers 20 years in every chapter. There's some new quirky villain or character popping up, many micro storylines to cover. And, and right. it's not a book about on the field action per se. It's a lot of behind the scenes action. So what, when I first started reading it, the first chapter talks extensively about the formation of the Premier League itself, the t- initial TV deal and the role that Rupert Murdoch played in that um, is kind of the initial indication that maybe they're onto something, we're onto something bigger that that nobody could have previously imagined. And then, of course, the role that some of the bigger clubs played in forming that. And so Everton was actually part of the big five that initially separated um, from the football league and they wanted to, to push towards the creation of the Premier League. Can you talk a little bit about that era, that that specific time in the league's formation? Yeah, you mean um, how, like why Everton were a part of that and how that all sort of came about? Well, it's interesting to me because Everton have historically been one of the biggest clubs in England, but since the formation of the Premier League have lagged behind some of the other bigger clubs, although being a consistent member of the Premier League, having never been relegated, is significant in itself. But they kind of have almost fallen out of that conversation, definitely fallen out of that conversation of the bigger clubs. Do you have any insight into the conditions for why that happened? Yeah, I mean... It's it's um it's it's true that that you know when you when you look back at the formation of the Premier League and and those you know big five clubs that were involved and we're talking about Arsenal, Tottenham, Manchester United, Liverpool, and Everton. Um, you know back then Liverpool was like by far and away the biggest team of those. You know the the biggest the biggest member of the big five back then. But but when you know after Liverpool, you're really looking at sort of. Arsenal or Everton as the second biggest team in terms of the, like the sort of recent success. Um, Everton, obviously, in the eighties, um, were a tremendous team under Howard Kendall. I, I actually um, caught an interview with Gary Lineker just um, the other day, where he was looking back on his career, and obviously, Gary Lineker played um, for you know Barcelona under Johan Cruyff. But he said that um, the Everton team he played for in um, 85, 86, I think, was the best team he ever paid for the best um, starting lineup he was ever a part of and so yeah so Everton were very much a part of the big five um, teams and within that big five there were three clubs who were really the kind of you know driving forces behind the Premier League breakaway and that was David Dean at Arsenal, Irving Scholar at Tottenham and Martin Edwards at Manchester United. Those guys were the sort of I guess you know, they would consider themselves to be the sort of visionaries who sort of saw a new future, a different future for English football. But they recognized that to do anything, to get where they wanted to go, they had to have Liverpool and Everton with them. Because back then they were, you know, like I say, you you could not have a 
a, a Premier League without those two being being part of it. Um, those big five were the were the sort of at the time were the um, you know the group of elite clubs in English football. But it's funny when you look at how the Premier League has developed and how the sort of their status within the Premier League has changed. Yes, Everton are one club that has the one club that has sort of fallen away. But I mean, Tottenham were very close to to, to um, you know occupying a similar sort of existence as Everton. And in fact, if you sort of look back ten years ago, I mean, um, you know, Tottenham were were very much on a par with Everton, a sort of mid-table team, rarely you know, or never really challenged for a title in the Premier League era. Um, and you know had sort of flirted with the Champions League a couple of times, much like um, Everton had under David Moyes. Um, so it's it's um, you know it, it's the, the Premier League transformed English football so much that the it, it, it was no longer sufficient to be just a good te- have a good collection of players on the pitch. The the Premier League bought you know um, marketing, um, corporate sponsorship, commercial savvy business know-how, all those things became just as important as who the manager was in the dugout, who the the, the centre forward, you know, um, in the centre circle was. So I think Everton, you know, fell away because they were sort of slow to come to that realisation and, and Spurs were slow to come to that realisation too. Whereas, you know, Manchester United obviously were a very early, you know, adopter of many of those things and kind of blazed the trail for the Premier League's off-field transformation, Arsenal were sort of quick to respond, and Tottenham, um, you know, or, or sorry, Liverpool rather, uh, you know, were able to sort of basically get by, despite the fact that they were also slow to come to terms with that. They were able to get by just on the fact that they were such a huge club when the Premier League started. And I think that we still see that same thing with Everton today. James and I talk about it all the time, but you know, the fact that they had, or we had Tim Howard for a decade. And they never really capitalized on marketing in America, right? The right. preseason tours, they've been going, you know, to, I believe, Africa recently, which you would think maybe they would go to America where, you know, NBC has been purchasing huge TV rights in the yep. States and have been doing a fantastic job broadcasting it, in my opinion. What, do you think that? That just comes down to not even, not even, you know, obviously money from owners was a huge factor, but do you think that just comes down to the fact that a lot of those other owners were businessmen through and through, and they just had the know-how and the imagination? I mean, it's interesting because I, I, I you know, it, it's something that has struck me during the course of doing the interviews for the book and speaking to the um, owners of, of, of modern Premier League teams, you realize that that there are sort of, I mean, we, we all know that there's, that the, the big six exists in terms of their success on the field. But when you, when you talk to those guys, it's almost like they're competing in a totally different league. It's almost like they're, they're, they're involved in a completely different business even. Um, because those big six teams are pretty much the only teams that can enter every season and don't have to have any kind of, concerns or worries about the prospects of relegation as you rightly point out Everton has never has never been relegated in the Premier League era but Everton is still you know when you speak to their owners they start each season hoping to finish you know as high up the table as possible but aware 
But if they get off to a bad start and have a couple of significant injuries, you know, the prospect of relegation is something that can't be ignored. And that really changes the calculus of how any of these owners um, kind of approach things like international marketing or long-term planning. Those top six teams are able to indulge in in that sort of, like I say, long-term planning, like ambitious overseas um, development. They're able to commit resources to establishing a major presence in the US, for instance, or working to raise their brands in China or Japan. Whereas the likes of Everton and West Ham, the team I support, and a lot of the other mid-table teams in, in English football, they don't have the, the, the time or the energy or the money or the resources to spend worrying about that because they are more concerned with the you know, day-to-day prospect of finishing up as high up the table as possible and trying to make sure that they don't get relegated because, you know, as we know, relegation from the Premier League has become, you know, a, a, a huge black hole where hundreds of millions of pounds evaporate and all of a sudden, you know, the, the future of your club is is hanging in the balance. So, you know, I think I think when you look at Everton and why they weren't able to sort of capitalise on the Tim Howard era, now, granted, that was under, you know, he was there, you know, for, for a period of, of, you know, almost unmatched stability for a mid-table team. And, and David Moyes did a very good job at turning Everton into more than a mid-table team. But but I, I think that's the reason. You, you look at you look at the teams that have been successful at, at kind of exporting their brand overseas, and it's it's the teams that don't have to worry about the kind of week to week survival in the Premier League. That's a that's a really good point. Something I guess fans of Everton still, even though you know we're American fans, so we're much more new to the party, so to speak. But there is a lot of consensus amongst Everton fans that they're insistent that because of the history that it's a massive club and that maybe players should have a certain attitude about coming to the club. And then when you have players such as Romelu Lukaku or, you know, there's been countless throughout the years that view Everton in a much more realistic sense and that rarely qualify for the Europa League just tends to not be a very attractive prospect when even compared to other Premier League clubs the top six or abroad, which you cover as well, the relative parity of the Premier League compared to other European leagues. Although there may, you know, the fact, just the fact that there's four or five teams that on at any given time can compete for the league title. Whereas in most other leagues, it's one or two. Right. Um, I think fans tend to have time trouble tempering those expectations and also recognizing the, massive gulf that separates the top six from the rest of the league. You know, you can almost segment it. I don't know if it's fair to segment it into the top six and the rest, because I think there's kind of like a middle ground there, but I do agree with your point. It's very well said that the, the threat of relegation at the beginning of every season for any team that's not in the big six is, is very, very real. Right. Exactly. And, and, you know, you're right. Like when we look at, like you know the teams as they line up every week there is definitely a a a group of clubs beyond the big six that are sort of you know i mean especially if you look at this season the premier league is clearly divided into sort of three different groups there's the top six there's like the 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 middle bunch which includes you know from sort of watford everton leicester um west ham you know and then there's the, the 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 group at the bottom who are who are trying to escape the drop so 
in some ways it, it makes sense to sort of you know divide the Premier League in uh, in three groups like that. But there there is a lot the similarities between the, the the second group and the third are much much stronger than than you know the, the, than between the top the, the top six and the rest. Like the top six are just a complete breed unto themselves. Their you know their um, commercial departments are often out. They, they often have commercial staff that outnumbers the total staff you know in in um in in those other clubs including playing staff so um you know it's just they're just completely different um enterprises almost and that's that's what makes things you know so that's what that's that's what what makes the gulf so difficult to to um to bridge but you know and and you know just just go back to your point i mean everton fans aren't wrong like everton is a huge club in the history of english football it's just um you know, in the sort of small window that the Premier League has been around, um, it you know it hasn't had that same level of success, and and that's true of of Aston Villa and Leeds, and you know, and and we've seen what happens to those teams. You know, it's the Premier League, uh, you know, has has no um, respect for the sort of reputations that those clubs have, and you know, we've seen that it doesn't take much mismanagement or a bad owner or a couple of bad seasons for huge clubs who have been, you know, among the most successful in English football history to, um, to come a cropper and get relegated. And unfortunately we saw the similarity or the close similarity between, you know, group number two, as you put it, and group number three, kind of the rest last season when Ronald Koeman was fired because we were sitting in, I think 18th place and, we had to hire none other than Big Sam Allardyce, right? Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, when you look at Allardyce, I mean, he's 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 been a manager for almost all those teams. You know, you look down the list of of those sort of you know perennial mid-table teams, and at one stage or another, Allardyce has had a stint with them because you know when you start a season badly and you're in trouble around Christmas, he, he is the guy you call to get you out of trouble. Yeah, and you being a West Ham fan, of course, uh, Sam Allardyce was able to get West Ham promoted from the championship. So you might have a slightly different view of him uh, as it pertains to your exact team. He was not a popular choice at the time for Everton, uh, though you can make the argument that it was necessary to get us out of trouble. I think many fans felt that it was a bit of a knee-jerk reaction. But in the face of the potential losses that come with relegation, perhaps the logic kind of goes out the window and it becomes, this is the tried and true way. And you mentioned this in the book, the crop of managers that you know David Moyes included in that, that specifically American owners tend to find comfort in hiring. Um, it, it just was interesting to me, forevermore, Sam Allardyce will have Everton manager on his resume. And you actually spoke to him while he was the manager of Everton, what was the conversation with him like? Well, so it's funny. I mean, he's, he's someone that I've spoken to, you know, a few times over the years, but what's funny is that the perception of Allardyce among football fans is very, very different to the perception of Allardyce among football owners. And you sort of hinted at that, when, when you were sort of, you know, talking about the part of the book where we, where we mentioned how, you know, especially American owners have been 
you know, very quick to hire some of these guys who have a series of, of um, campaigns where they've avoided relegation on their resumes. But um, if you speak to any, pretty much any owner who has had um, Sam Allardyce as their manager, they only have like glowing things to say about him because, and that's partly because, you know, he's someone who um, has protected their investments and, a lot of times these guys have, you know, tens and hundreds of millions of dollars on the line, depending on whether they get relegated or not. And so the fact that he can come in and, um, you know, lead their clubs to safety, obviously, like endears him to them. But I think there's also a sense that whatever you say about Sam, whatever the supporters think about him, and, and you know, he was not a popular figure at West Ham either. Fans were protesting him, even when he was leading them, leading the club to promotion in the championship, uh, let alone you know during some of those seasons in the Premier League where results went bad for weeks or months at a time. But uh, but yeah, the owners. You speak to the owners about him, and they say that he's a guy who is always you know at the at the training ground, constantly in his office, like always working. You know, goes to reserve games, youth team games is constantly at other games scouting opponents, scouting future transfer prospects. Um, and it's, it's something that, that um, is also true of David Moyes. And I think that sort of old-style manager who is kind of ever-present at the training ground and it can be, you, know, it, you can literally see the hours they're putting in, I think that um, you know, really, really ha- like has a, a significant impact on the owners. They, they, when their club is in trouble, you want to see somebody who is there all the time putting in the work to, to, um, to improve the team. And so I think that's one of the things that, 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 that you know, they like about Allardyce. Um, and then I guess the other thing that was sort of interesting about speaking to him was just how much, um, you know, how sort of calculating he is about the, the job opportunities that he takes. You know, he has this incredible record of never having got relegated from the Premier League. And he is, you know, that is literally his his calling card, his, his, you know, his entire professional life rests on the fact that that has never happened to him. So he, he was very open about the fact that he, he took the Everton job because he knew that that team was too good to get relegated. He knew that he could go in there and with just by doing the sort of same old thing that he does at every team, he would be able to keep, you know, steer them clear of safety. Whereas when he was approached by Huddersfield this year about taking over, he was a lot more circumspect and, it, and it eventually told the owners that he wasn't interested in doing that because he knew that taking over a team like Huddersfield was, was something that was beyond, you know, his skill set. So he's, he's, he, you know, he's someone who recognizes that he has a, a, a great recipe for, you know, avoiding relegation, but it is not, you know, infallible. Like he, he needs something to work with in the first place. And I think he thought that Everton was, um, you know, really the sort of, far far too good to have been in fact i think i think he was surprised i think as you mentioned i think he was surprised that everton contacted him about taking the job because he thought that they were a club who you know were probably a little bit beyond the sort of jobs that he traditionally gets called in to do i never thought about the fact that he would be calculated but it makes so much sense you know his his reputation is just at that point all he's got and he's definitely nearing the end of his career i would think right he's mid to upper 60s at this point i think so yeah i mean i part of me thinks that he will come back at least once more just because um there'll probably be another everton situation where you know not everton but some club who's far too good to be down in the relegation battle will end up down there and we'll call Allardyce and he'll get them out but it's also tricky because you know like you mentioned he's now been at so many 
Premier League clubs. Fans aren't usually clamoring to have him back once he's gone. So it's kind of difficult. Like he's now been at, you know, he's not going back to Newcastle. He's not going back to West Ham. He's not going back to Everton. The list goes on and on. I mean, you know, he's sort of running out of teams that he can actually work with. But um, but my, my gut tells me he will be back at some stage. And, you know, he's he sort of comes across as a, as a very kind of back-to-basics manager. You know, his, his style of play is kind of seen as very primitive and that makes him seem like an unsophisticated guy. But he's actually a very smart guy, like, you know, very early adopter of, um, you know, analytics in the football, you know, one of the sort of real pioneers of that in the Premier League. And um, he mentioned how he got a lot of, a lot of his kind of interest in analytics came from his time he, that he spent playing in the US when he played for the Tampa Bay Rowdies back in the sort of seventies, I think. And it was his, it was lo- looking at how other US sports teams um, use data to improve their kind of team building and decision-making really rubbed off on him. And, and uh, like I say, you speak to owners about him and the, their impressions of him are very, very different to, to what the sort of casual fan would have. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring up the analytics point because I remember when he was Everton manager reading about the extensive backroom research that goes into his formation of game plans and his coaching of players. One of the themes of the second half of the book is the influx of American owners in their attempts to identify inefficiencies in the market similar to what was done in the MLB with Oakland A's and Moneyball and then John Henry with the Red Sox. But it turns out, as you as you summarize in the book, that it's really hard to identify any inefficiencies in the market because at the end of the day, um, I, I don't remember the name of whoever wrote the study, but the correlation between payroll and league position is virtually perfect. So there aren't necessarily statistical inefficiencies that are even there to exploit in the first place. Right, right. I think this is the sort of great assumption of American sports executives nowadays is that because, because you know, data and analytics has transformed baseball and, you know, to an extent basketball as well, you know, when you look at the Warriors and how they kind of, you know, their, you know, embrace of the three-pointer has like sort of ushered in a, a complete revolution in the way that basketball is played and the way that we understand the game. I think there's a sort of assumption that that must be true for every sport and that like soccer was kind of a, a classic example where they could go in and, and hire a couple of um, analytics guys to come up with some algorithms that would you know lead them to success and riches and trophies and, and all that sort of thing. Um, but, but yeah, I think the Premier League quickly disabused them of that notion. And, you know, I think if you look at the one team that is still sort of you know, attempting to to kind of walk that path. Um, it's it's Fulham, who Tony Khan, Shad Khan's son, is there. You know, is the key figure at that club. He's he has a impact in, input into the um, you know player acquisitions, um, and he is very open about the fact that they have basically tried to moneyball their way in the Premier League, and was very bullish about their prospects this season. You know, they are bottom of the table, whatever it is. So. You know, another one, another one um, owner has sort of seen that grand plan fall apart. But yeah, I mean that that the I, I think when you look at you know John Henry as well, you know he he very clearly early on tried to use some of that stuff to build a title contender on the cheap. And I think that 
his experiences doing that left him led him to exactly the same conclusion that you that you mentioned that like actually what matters here is uh you know money and so liverpool now has spent more than any other english team the last transfer window or last two transfer windows or whatever it is and and now finds itself competing for titles that's not an accident that is the way things are in the premier league so speaking of building a title winning club for the cheap it's no secret that a couple of years ago leicester city winning the title with I think it was 5,000 to one odds and Steve Walsh kind of building the squad. You know, I, I, I read in the book, right? Riyad Mahrez was scooped up from the second division, I think in France for a whopping 700,000 pounds. Wes Morgan, I believe Danny Drinkwater will, were picked up for about a mil each. And then you saw Steve Walsh move to Everton and it was just completely the opposite. He had all the money he could have dreamed of to this point in his career, I think, he just absolutely bottled it. Steve Walsh, also a very nice, um, smart guy. But I think I think if you ask him about why that happened, why he wasn't able to achieve the same sort of success that he did he did at Leicester when he during his time at Everton, I think he would say that, you know, Leicester knew exactly what it wanted to be. Leicester knew that was never going to have more possession than their opponents, that they had, they found, you know, Jamie Vardy and a couple of other guys and soon came to the conclusion that, you know, playing on the counter and breaking at teams, breaking against teams at speed from deep was their way, the only way that they could realistically, you know, hope to compete. And, you know, he then set about building a team in that image and i think the problem he found when he moved to everton was that everton wasn't really sure exactly how it wanted to play and if you look at the sort of managerial appointments that the club has made since david moyes left you can kind of see there's like not a very deliberate and clear idea of like all those the various people who have occupied that job you know including moyes but but, but for moyes and and then onwards all have very different ideas about how they want to play. And I think I think that is where he felt that he, why part of the reason that he struggled was that there was just no clear plan for how the club wanted, you know, there's the, the, no clear sort of identity. And that meant that makes finding players very difficult. I think that the lack of identity is something that m- most, if not all Everton fans would wholeheartedly agree with since David Moyes. Being active on Everton Twitter, there have been shouts now to bring David Moyes back because at least with him, there was some sort of identity. And when Everton signed Steve Walsh, I was very excited. And I think most fans were because of what he accomplished at Leicester. But I think one of the key differences was that he was appointed as director of football at Everton, which is a vastly different role than a head scout might have. And I think the difficulty was that the role of director of football was something that Everton were trying, you know, it was a new thing that they were trying and the role itself may not have been clearly defined. Whereas now that we've appointed Marcel Brands, of course, from PSV, who has previously held the role of director of football, he has a much more clear idea of what the mandate is for that role, what needs to be done. And it is more of a big picture. The entire club um, managing the style of play all the way up through the academy to the first team and developing 
the club from a from a much more bird's eye view. And I think perhaps Steve Walsh, that was not something that he was either suited for or prepared for. Of course, not wanting to put words in his mouth, but that just seems to be the impression that many Everton fans have of his time. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, and then I think the other thing um, that I would say, speaking to, to people at Everton, is um, I think that people look at what has happened at Manchester United after Ferguson was there. And there's some sort of sense that, you know, though it's shocking to see Manchester United, you know, you know, fall to such an extent, it's not totally surprising because Ferguson was there for so long and had his like fingerprints on so many, you know, so, so much of the club or almost every aspect of the club that like when a figure like that moves away, it's, it's sort of understandable that there will be, you know, huge repercussions. And I think at Everton, they feel that in a way, the departure of, of Moyes was not that different from Ferguson. He had been at Everton for so long. And again, was a guy who had really like had his, you know, fingers involved in like every corner of the club that it was sort of one of the underrated aspects was just how, you know, a lot of people were aware that, that Ferguson's departure would have an outsized impact on Manchester United. But I feel like a lot of people, not, not many people recognize that Everton would have the same, the same problems. And I think that the sort of early success that they had once Moyes departed sort of meant that people, uh, you know, blind, blinded people to that, to that fact, blinded people to the fact that Moyes, you know, in his own way was sort of as central to the running of Everton football club as, as Ferguson had been to Manchester United. John, one of the big things and trends that we've noticed just in doing the podcast, but also something that you speak about in the book is the external influence on the league and how that relates to British fans uh, who tend to be fairly parochial. And especially with a club like Everton versus a team like Manchester United, who have been a global brand for decades at this point. Do you think that there is a key difference in how British fans view American fans or American owners versus how they view maybe someone such as Usmanov or, you know, the foreign owners from other countries? There definitely is a, is a difference. And American owners that I've spoken to have made this point repeatedly, um, which is that for some reason, and I think there are a lot of factors at play. So there's a lot to sort of unpack. Um, in, in terms of the, the, the sort of motivations behind this. But um, for some reason, uh, when American owners are linked with buying a team or do buy a English football team, fans are much, much more hostile and skeptical towards them than they are for, you know, uh, businessmen from almost any other part of the world. And it's something that the American owners find incredibly frustrating because if you look at the history of American owners in the Premier League, there have certainly been some bad ones, but there has been, there have been no, you know, if, if you look at, you know, e- even the bad ones have sort of been transparent in, in what they're trying to do. Whereas if you look at like some of the owners who have got involved in the Premier League and, um, have been much less transparent from other parts of the world. There have been, you know, unmitigated disasters. You look at Portsmouth, for instance, who were, you know, sold multiple times to Russian and then Middle Eastern investors and, you know, spiraled out of the league very quickly. You know, I, I think 
there's a sense that American owners are sort of almost too business minded and too bottom line focused. And that doesn't really get fans excited in the same way that like a shake from the Middle East who may be willing to blow, you know, tens of billions of oil money um, on building a championship team um, might do. Even though, like I say, you know, if you look at the sort of in, on the balance of things, I think American owners have actually been a lot more responsible um, than owners from other parts of the world. So that's really interesting. I think that business piece is probably spot on. Now, I, I have maybe somewhat of a controversial question to ask, but do you think that do you think that maybe part of it subconsciously for British fans could be that they don't believe either? Well, I guess the American owners would be as passionate about the sport or the club in general than, you know, compared to people from other parts of the world that, you know, soccer is one of their, you know, top or top two sports that they've followed, you know, since the beginning of time. Yeah, definitely. I think there's still a, a, a wide misperception in England that um, Americans don't really, not, not, not just don't love soccer in the same way, but don't understand soccer even in the same way. And I think that, you know, undoubtedly has like led to that perception. I think, so I think that's definitely a part of it. I, I think, like I said, there have been owners, American owners, Randy Lerner, Aston Villa, um, you know, Gillette and Hicks at Liverpool who have, who have done very badly. And, and that has played into it. I think the, the Glazer takeover of Manchester United, where they loaded, you know, so much debt onto the club has meant that, you know, English football fans, you know, that they were the first real American foreign owners and first real American owners to invest in the Premier League. And I think that has kind of, you know, tainted the rest of the other American investors who have come over because there is a sense that the Glazers were focused only on the bottom line and of what they could get out of Manchester United rather than improving the, the, the team on the field. And then, yeah, I think, I think that, you know, like I say, that, that the fact that Americans aren't willing to like spend way beyond their means to try and, you know, buy championships is, is also a factor. But yeah, definitely. You look at what, uh, at that, um, you know, Bob Bradley's time at Swansea as well. And you can see that there's still a lot of hostility towards Americans purely based on the fact that, um, you know, soccer isn't the, the premier sport here. All right, before we get into Everton versus Cardiff away on Tuesday, let's talk about a couple of news pieces that came out this week. The first one, James, apparently Everton have agreed to pay Watford a compensation of about four million pounds for Marco Silva. How do you feel about that? It's nice that they were finally able to settle and I'm happy that this is all resolved. With that said, it is much more money than I would have liked considering we already paid them compensation when um, when recruiting him. They were probably very adamant about getting some sort of settlement. It is just really honestly nice to have this all put to bed. I don't think it will change any of the attitudes of either fan base towards the other. I think it only fosters more animosity, especially coming from Watford towards us. Although considering our relative league positions at the moment, they don't really have too much to be upset about. I honestly didn't even know it was still going on. I remember when Watford was issuing super passive aggressive unprofessional statements through their 
official website about the quote unquote issue. I really quite honestly thought we were just kind of ignoring it. I'm being pretty speculative, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the only reason Everton would pay is if the league kind of forced them, kind of twisted their arm with sanctions. And in terms of Watford's attitude towards Everton, and and if you follow their Twitter account, because I'm assuming as an Everton fan, you're not uh, uh, camping out on their home webpage. They released another pretty pretty uh, unprofessional statement about Everton. But it's funny because yesterday Watford beat Cardiff City 5-1, Dale Lefeu with three goals and two assists. That was actually Watford's first hat trick in the Premier League. And yet they still try to provoke an argument <laughs> to say that Watford is a bigger club than Everton, which is absolutely blasphemous, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. They'll never be the club that we are stature-wise with the history. However, the way it currently stands, they are several places above us in the league, and the gap continues to widen. An emphatic win for them against Cardiff yesterday, putting five pass almost all in the second half, I believe. So the wheels kind of just fell off for Cardiff, which was bizarre, but I did catch the highlights. And Delafeu, it's only going to continue to spark another debate amongst Evertonians whether we would take him back. Anytime one of our former players has a good game, it just riles up the fan base more considering that you know we're kind of in a bad place right now, struggling to find people who can score goals. So I always loved Delafeu on the team, but he did have his drawbacks in that he was always absolutely gassed by the 60-minute mark, something well-documented. But he seems to have found success at Watford, and I wish the player nothing but the best, but Watford can... Uh, piss off as far as I'm concerned. Well said, James, per usual. And and De La Feu still loves Everton. So, you know, that's that's always nice. And then second piece of news before we get into our official pre-match, Chelsea has been given a two-transfer window ban. Apparently, FIFA started an investigation in 2014 after they signed Triore. The investigation, they said, lasted three years. So I'm not quite sure why it's now 2019 and this is coming out. Apparently, they have something like six months to to try and contest the uh, ban itself. But the reason why we bring this up is because we have Kurt Zuma on loan. This ban would mean they couldn't buy players, but they could sell them. So what do you think this means for Everton and Kurt Zuma if the ban stands? Well, there's effectively two arguments. There's two sides of the coin, right? There's one saying that, well, since they have this ban, they're not going to want to let any of their good players leave, uh, and they'll probably want to hold on to their assets. The other side, which I saw some people saying on Twitter and Reddit, would be that their strategy would be to try to appeal the, the ban so that they can delay the enforcement of the ban itself for probably starting next year, or you know at least give them the summer transfer window to try to do some business. And then we may see a flurry of action where they're going to try to sell a lot of players and try to bring a lot of players in so that they um, are set when the ban eventually takes place. Because I, I think it's highly unlikely that they'll have the ban completely reversed. I don't know the details of what the precedent is for having a ban shortened. I, I would think it's highly unlikely. So it could be good news, honestly, if, if the they have the the summer to do business and they want to get all the dead weight essentially out and they don't see a future for Kurt Zuma, then they may be willing to let him go for a reasonable fee instead of kind of turning the screws on us and making us pay a ridiculous fee. Let's hope so. I think everyone can agree that uh, 
that Kurt Zuma should be at the club. It just comes down to, is he going to want to or not? So let's move on to our pre-match segment. Everton are currently in 10th place with 33 points. We play away at Cardiff City on Tuesday. As said previously, Cardiff lost 5-1 to one against Watford on Friday yesterday. And ironically enough, Everton's last match was lost against Watford on the 9th of February. How confident are you feeling in this match, James? Not. <laughs> I'm not feeling very confident. I have some hope and I'm holding out hope and optimism that this 17-day break give everyone a bit of time to reflect, regroup, and kind of get a fresh start, despite the fact that we're you know almost two-thirds of the way, two-thirds of the way through the season and come out with guns blazing and maybe see kind of a renaissance of the style of play that we saw for the first 10 games, but not optimistic overall because it just has been so long since we've seen this team play well. If they were to completely reverse the style of play and we're we're back on, I would be really happy to see it. I just don't see it happening. I don't know. Where are you at on the optimism scale? I'm feeling pretty optimistic. Cardiff, first of all, only have about three days of rest compared to our 17, as you said. Furthermore, you know, at that point, they shipped five goals. So, and on top of that, because Nias is loaned from Everton, he can't play against their parent club. So they they lose their absolutely prolific strike <laughs> striker, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, if anything's been necessary, it's it's this match because we have a lot of really tough fixtures coming up. The season is quickly coming to a close before we know it. So let's dive into the lineup. I'm going to assume as we have the entire year that we are both on the same page that Jordan Pickford will starting goal. So James, give me your defense. It's going to be John Joe Kenny for me and Luca Dean, of course. And then the center backs is where things get kind of interesting because you would assume Michael Keane, rock solid, penciled in, no questions about him. But then because Kurt Zuma is serving a one-match ban for the ludicrous post-whistle red card he received, uh, that second center back position is kind of up in the air because we don't know if Yerry Mina is officially fit. We suspect that he may be. Phil Jagielka is presumed to be fit, but nothing really certain on those terms either. And so then you kind of have the possibility of a youth player, Morgan Feeney, something Alex has been talking about. I would hope that we would have at least Phil Jagielka. Jagielka alongside Michael Keane doesn't exactly inspire me with a lot of confidence, but it's a professional, you know, Jagielka hasn't, we haven't seen him for so long, so it's it'll be kind of throwing him back into the fire, but I think that those two would be enough to beat Cardiff, long story short. What about you? Pretty much exactly what I'd choose, right? Both out, both fullbacks, completely the same. Michael Keane is penciled in. I tried to check the latest Everton Unseen video. Yuri Mina was not training in that segment that they showed. However, Jagielka was out there with the rest of the squad alongside a uh, special shout out to James McCarthy. He looked happy. But uh, I think it would be cool to see Jagielka just because I kind of miss him. You know, he, he, was, he was one of the faces of Everton for the longest time. Moving on to the midfield, I'm going to assume that we're both sticking with a 4-3-3. And if yeah. it's safe to assume that, who would you like in your midfield? This one's this one's interesting. I think that Adrisa Ganagay is very, very important to how we play and affords us a lot of, affords the other midfielders he plays with a lot of freedom 
in that they don't have to worry about their defensive duties as much because they know that they have him to cover them. Similar to how Conte plays for Chelsea or played for Chelsea and is not no longer playing. So that, but then you, it begs the question: Do we need a defensive midfielder against Cardiff? I would like to see perhaps Tom Davies in that role in a deeper sitting midfielder, and then have Andre Gomez and Sigurdsson to give us a lot of creativity, a little more offensive know-how, and probably gives us a better chance of creating goal-scoring opportunities. I think with Ghana in there, we all know what his weaknesses are, getting forward, passing the ball. I think we're going to need those elements in our midfield if we're going to be successful in breaking down what will probably be a pretty resolute and well-drilled Cardiff defense. Great minds think alike, James. I'm going to go with the same three personnel in the midfield, but I am going to switch positions a little bit. So I'd like to see Gomez in that holding role because he has such a good range of passing. And then I'd like to see both Sigurdsson and Tom Davies deployed in just kind of free roam roles that we've seen actually in the last couple, some of the last couple matches, specifically when Ghana was out towards the end of January in his speculative PSG phase. Because I personally think Tom Davies' strengths are using his stamina and his perseverance, as well as just he's a forward thinking midfielder. And I know, obviously, we both know that Sigurdsson also plays best in that role. So no complaints there. In terms of your front three, then, here's where it's always getting a little iffy, right? All season long. Who would you take? For me, I think you're going to go with, I'm going to go with Bernard on the left, Cenk Tosin up top. And if Adamola Lookman, I, he's kind of an anomaly or it's just weird what's going on with him. I can't figure out. It's enigmatic whether he, it's an attitude thing, whether he's just constantly hurt. But if he's fit, I play him on the right. I think that Richarlison has been kind of flat for some time now. And his first instinct is always to look to score, which is what we want. But if we can get Bernard, if we can find that right balance of wingers who want to create opportunities and combine that with you know getting Gilfie Sigurdsson on the ball, allowing him to get scoring chances, because he's our second best goal scorer, objectively, with the number of goals he scored. So I don't think you need just all these players that are constantly looking to score. I think we need players who are, especially from wide areas that are going to look to create chances. So I think Bernard offers that. And then Cenk Tosin, just, I think, straight up our best holdup player. Not much more to it than that. And we're probably going to need some holdup play in order to break teams down. And then Lookman on the right, still bizarre what's going on with him, but has all the potential in the world and would like to finally start to see some dividends pay out from that. What about you? Are you agreeing? You think we should still play Richarlison? Where are you at? It's just so hard because... I think that I think that everyone likes Richarlison and Bernard, or at least I think everyone that really understands and appreciates soccer in, in all its glory. I think that pace is going to be absolutely crucial to the match for Everton specifically. Well, honestly, for both for both sides. Bernard is one of the quickest. I do want to see Lookman. I think what I'm gonna say is I want to see Richarlison on the left. I, w- I would like to see Jink Tosin up top, as you said, hold up play, but also I think he has more experience. He's most likely going to go up against three center backs. And so with that being said, I think he'll do better finding space that maybe Dom would not be able to as efficiently, because as we know, it's a game of inches. It's literally you have a millisecond to beat the defender to a certain spot in your post, blah, blah, blah. And on the right-hand side, I'd like to go with Adam Lookman. 
if Lookman is for some reason not in the picture once again, then Bernard. I like that. I like that idea of Ber- trying Bernard on the right. It's something that when he's he hasn't really like started there. Maybe for one game, I think he did. But with one of the things Marco Silva does tactically is occasionally he'll just say, "All right, let's scrap it," and or we'll switch wingers. Uh, Richarlison moved to the right, Lookman to the left, etc. Uh, in periods of the game to kind of give a different look to the de- to the opposition defense. So I would like to see Bernard on the right as well. You know, he's not the type of player who's going to look to score. So I think he can do his job of looking to create chances from the right just as well as he can from the left. Okay, so let's get into tactics. For me, I think from Everton's perspective, they're going to look to possess the ball. But I think really the key, and Marco Silva said it before, if we're going to possess the ball, you got to move it quickly. You can't be sluggish, especially when you're playing against a team that's most likely going to bunker down. Yeah, I think that, that that I agree that that is one of the major tactical keys. The shape of Cardiff is going to be very compact, I think. They're not going to be very adventurous with pressing high or anything like that. They're going to look to sit in, defend in one of the things that that's been one of our biggest struggles this season is breaking down teams that want to do that. It becomes getting the ball wide, being able to have players in the box that we can actually cross the ball into. And the quick movement is going to be good, important because we're going to need to get them out of their shape. They, we can't let them hold their shape. We're going to have to get their players in awkward positions, beat players with quick passes so that they're left chasing the ball behind. And we'll see if we can do it. It would be a marked improvement on what we've seen for the majority of the year where it's kind of sluggish. We have a lot of possession, but it's relatively meaningless in that it's a lot of cycling the ball around our center backs, maybe getting it up high to Luca Dean for a cross. But a lot of it is just very meandering and doesn't really seem to have any intent. So passing with intent and with pace will be Everton's best chance of creating chances and scoring goals. There's a pretty scary statistic that I was very much not aware of until now. Cardiff at home create 12 and a half shots per game. Everton away create 10.5 shots per game. Yeah, it's a little bit frightening. You would expect a team to play better at home versus away, so it's not entirely surprising. But I think the game, if anyone, any Everton fan expecting us to go in and dominate the game, dominate shots, I think we'll be sorely disappointed. I think we'll have to temper expectations a little bit. And it's about how, what are the chances we're creating? Are we shooting from 25 yards out and firing them over? Or are we getting quality chances, players, you know, headers for Cenk Tosin in the box, shots from around the 18, layoffs for Gilfie Sigurdsson to take, which we know he can finish from pretty much anywhere on the field. The quality of shots versus the quantity is going to be the the major factor for me because Cardiff, they get one or two good chances, they can tuck them away. <clears throat> and then we're looking at, a 2-1 loss, you know, that that's something that could very easily, I could very easily see unfolding. All right. So we've covered our preferred lineups. We've talked about tactics. Who are the key players or key positions for Everton? And then who are the key positions for Cardiff in this match, in your opinion? So I'm going to lump them together. I think the key matchup, our key position is going to be whoever fills in for that center back role for Kurt Zuma. The partnership with Michael Keane and Kurt Zuma has been consistent and they've clearly developed a pretty good rapport with each other and understanding of who's covering what, except on set pieces, of course. Still no idea what's going on there. 
but that's been our partnership for some time. And so when you switch that up, will that affect the ability to be in the right place positionally at the right time? We know Michael Keane has been great at winning balls in the air. And we know Cardiff are probably going to play a lot of long balls. And with the absence of Umar Nias because of the loan uh, conditions, I don't, whoever Cardiff plays up top, they're not going to be a super imposing threat. But that doesn't mean that they can't create one or two good chances. And we know that the players on our back line are prone to momentary lapses that result in individual errors and goals. So that's that's my take on who I think that that matchup is going to be very important. And then the question, of course, becomes, can we score goals? But Alex, what are you thinking tactically? What is the key matchup for you, uh, Everton wise or Cardiff? So I think for Everton, I'm going to focus on the other end of the pitch. I think our two wingers are the most important. And I say that because we pretty much know we're going to have possession. We talked about how Cardiff are going to bunker down. So we need those players sharp and on point. They're going to need to utilize their pace. They're going to need to be ready to put pinpoint balls into the box or ideally score a couple goals, but we haven't been able to rely on that other than Richarlison. In terms of Cardiff City, I'm going to say they're central midfield. And I'm going to say that because as again stated, they're not going to have the majority of possession. And so it's going to be you have minimal touches. Can you make one of your passes count? Can you unlock one of your players on the counterattack and make Everton pay for it? So James, with that being said, what is your fabled score prediction? I think this is a massively important game for setting the tone for the rest of our games the rest of the season, but also to alleviate some of the pressure that is on Marco Silva. Though I do not believe that he's under immediate pressure of being sacked, he could very easily lose the fans if the results don't start to turn around. And so I think he recognizes that. I think the squad recognized the importance of this one. Though I said earlier that I'm not optimistic about it, I still can see us winning this game 1-0. What about you? I'm going to go with 2-0. I'm not saying that we are any sort of prolific team, but I think that Cardiff are not going to have very much rest. I think that they just got battered 5-1. to one. And again, they're missing Umar Nias, their prolific striker. So <laughs> I think that it's pretty fair to say that we could score two goals. Makes me a little... Anytime we both predict a win, it's almost a surefire recipe for us to lose. So that gives me pause. But what else could you expect? We're not going to predict a loss to Cardiff. It's Cardiff, people. Come on. If we can't beat Cardiff, we have some serious, serious, serious problems with our side. Thanks for tuning in to the American Toffee Podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at USA Toffee Pod to stay up to date on the latest episode releases and Everton news. And we'll see you guys next time.